0: Opinions expressed on ECB media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of its elected officials, or its staff.
1: I am thrilled. This is Pat Sheehan. I am thrilled to be uh, moderating this panel, and I think our panelists are all here. I think I will introduce Clark Rockville, who is... Uh, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, and he has been working with Kelly Lipo and Margaret Perothers from the Space Telescope Science Institute. And Clark, this has been your baby, uh, and you have worked with this, with this institute for over a year. So I, I'd love you to introduce this segment, The your... your your friends over at the Space Telescope Science Institute and uh, tell us what we're going to see right now.
2: Well, thank you so much, Pat. And uh, you <laughs> you gave me a lot more credit than than I deserve in that introduction. Um, I wish these folks were my friends. I you know, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later on., uh, but hello, everyone. my this is Clark Rockfall. I'm the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, based out of our national office in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, and I know that last summer, much like many of you out there who are listening, whether you are uh, some of my uh, friends and neighbors. So I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and just looking through the attendee list, I saw some 410 um, and some 301 and some 443 area, co- area codes. So always good, back, good to be back in the company of my fellow Marylanders. Even though I'm a, a Virginia resident now, across across the river, uh, but last summer I was mesmerized as the data was being shared publicly uh, from the James Webb Space Telescope. Not because I was awed by the images, but because of the intentional attention to detail that the folks at the Space Telescope Science Institute paid to the alt text and extended image descriptions. So at the ACB national office, along with my colleagues, Kelly Gask and Swathanandakumar, uh, we were fortunate enough to reach out to the folks at the Space Telescope Science Institute and actually get a response. How about that? Uh, and in in that process, we were able to host a, a live event with several of the folks doing the great work, um, helping to share the data from James Webb and Hubble and and others, um, and the work that's being done to make it accessible. You know, I was Pat, I was uh, re, uh, re-consuming the podcast we created from that live event back at the End of September. If folks missed it, it's available in the American Council of the Blind YouTube page, as well as an audio file on the ACB Advocacy Update. I believe the date is October fifth, twenty twenty-two, and and the reason I say that I wish these folks were my friends because several of our hosts, like Claire, talked about um, the the verbal cues and words that she would use while uh, looking at a map and interpreting in a map when going. Backcountry hiking. And I believe one of our guests here today, Kelly L- Lipo, talked about doing uh, astronomy pub trivia and some of the fun trivia facts, which will likely come up later, but how you can distinguish an image from the James Webb and Hubble space telescopes. Uh, so, Very excited to join you all here today. Uh, Very excited that the folks from the Space Telescope Science Institute out of the Mikulski Center in Baltimore, Maryland, are here to present to the ACB of Maryland. And then I'll tease up a little bit more to come later on. Also very excited to have them joining us in person for the ACBDC Leadership Conference uh, in person Uh, at the Hilton Alexandria Old Town, the weekend of March 9th through 12th. And the Space Telescope folks will have a presentation the morning of Saturday, March 11th. And this is an in-person only event. Registration for the Leadership Conference is still open. It remains open through February 28th. And Pat, I will kick it back to you.
1: Well, thank you, Clark. Uh, uh, you've got everything in there. You even got a plug in there. I think Eric, Eric would be pleased you got a plug in there for the in-person uh, conference. So uh, we have uh, two people uh, to, to speak to us today. And So uh, growing up as a, as a kid in Massachusetts, I had my own telescope, and I got a chance to, when I was able to see... You know, look at the moon, look at Orion's nebula, look at the rings of Saturn, look at double stars in the Big Dipper. So very much like Clark, you know, I just I've always loved the space program. I grew up in the age of Gemini with uh, us not even going to the moon yet, but just always fascinated by the stars. And so, you know, I I thought it was just wonderful first that that, of course, Space Telescope Science Institute is is in Maryland in Baltimore. Secondly, we have two amazing women who are just doing just some wonderful are Kelly Lipo, who is our astronomer, and Margaret, uh, who has been in charge of the writing, and education, and both in charge of outreach. So I will leave it up to both of you. Uh, I think it's uh, to, to tell us the differences between the Hubble telescope, the James Webb telescope, What we're seeing with both of them and maybe go through a little bit of the of the of the writing and tell, you know, maybe for those who haven't seen and didn't get a chance to listen to the podcast. uh, What are we looking at here? So take it away.
3: Great. So, Kelly, do you want to start by just uh, telling them about the um, about Web and difference between Web and Hubble and all that? Sure. Um,
4: So. The Hubble Space Telescope and the Webb Space Telescopes are two different telescopes in space. Hubble orbits around the Earth. It was launched in uh, 1990, and it's been serviced a couple times since then. And that telescope primarily looks at visible light. So that's the type of light that human eyes evolved to see. And that type of light is very good for seeing things like stars um, and, and galaxies. Uh, But what it can't do is it can't see through dust. And so space is actually full of dust. And it's not all that dissimilar than the dust that you have in your house. Um, And so that's why, partially why, we went to all the trouble of building the James Webb Space Telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope is an infrared telescope that is looking at light that is redder, so longer wavelengths than the wavelengths of light that our eyes evolved to see. It's about a million miles away from the Earth at this point called L2 because the telescope needs to be very, very cold in order to see this infrared light. So it needs to be away from the heat of the Earth and the sun. Um, and it's very good at seeing through dust, which is everywhere in space, to see what's going on inside of regions that are forming stars and seeing black holes at the center of galaxies. And it can also peer into the ancient universe. So it turns out that space is expanding. And as space expands, it stretches the light to the point where the Hubble telescope can't see it. And so we need our new observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope, which launched uh, Christmas Day 2022 uh, to give us new eyes into the
3: universe. Is that a good explanation, Margaret? Well, I thought it was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And and really, I I think what that makes me think of, and I was going to kind of save this for the end, but I think now's a good time, is that. You know when we're talking about accessibility and making things visible like the the wet the telescope it's like an accessibility machine right so i mean all telescopes are all all these scientific instruments are they are making things that are too far away too dim or in the case say of a microscope too small but the telescope's too far away too dim or in the case of web light that human eyes no human eyes can can detect uh, they're making it possible for us to um, to detect and use. So it all kind of starts there, <laughs> the uh, making the universe visible to everybody. So, um, let's see, where should we go from here? <laughs> um, does anybody? This is yeah. Clark.
2: I'm yeah. I'm happy to jump in with a question. So Kelly, yeah. you mentioned that the Hubble Telescope is in. Earth orbit. um, And sorry if I missed this, but what is the orbit of the James Webb telescope?
4: So the James Webb uh, telescope follows the Earth around as it travels around the sun, but it does it from about a million miles away. And so the way that gravity works out in the solar system, we can balance the gravity of the Earth and the sun with the rotation of the telescope and stick it out at the stable point a million miles away.
2: And just two more quick questions for me. Uh, so you mentioned that the Hubble telescope has been serviced a few times. What is the service plan, uh, the AAA plan for the James Webb Space Telescope?
4: Uh, so there is no service plan at the moment. Uh, so we part of the reason that it took 20 years to get uh, Webb into space is because we had to make sure that it worked perfectly well because there was no plan B. Um, So there was a lot of testing done by all of the scientists and engineers working on the telescope to make sure it would work flawlessly. And so far it has. Um, So maybe in the distant future, we'll have some sort of robotic servicing mission. But right now, that's just science fiction.
2: Thank you. And then uh, one last question as I I poke a little fun at my co-host here. Uh, So slight Friendly uh, agreement, disagreement between Pat and me. Uh, Is it Gemini or Gemini for the pre-shuttle NASA programs?
4: Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I think NASA likes to say Gemini. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I think Walter Cronkite said Gemini. Yes. Uh, I don't remember. All right. At least I didn't go back to Sputnik. (laughs) <laughs> we're lucky about that anyway
2: pat sounds like we owe, we both owe each other a drink at the leadership <laughs> conference then. that works that works
1: and you know i'm fascinated by by you know what we saw with the hubble telescope and then what we're seeing with the uh with the Webb telescope james webb telescope uh i uh, you know when i looked at at the at the output uh, there were so many rich colors. And can you talk about the richness of what was seen, uh, how the data came in, and, and a little bit of that experience going, you know, when we when you first started getting the data in and how that looked and just kind of, it, is it what we expected to see or just what was your experience? You were right there in Baltimore when all of this came through.
3: Um. I can speak a little bit about that. And Kelly, please jump in. <laughs> um, so I, so this is Margaret. Um, uh, I'm a science science writer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. So I, I had the uh, great, great privilege of being there um, on the team, um, working kind of every day as those first image data was com- were coming, we uh, coming first data was coming in. Um, we had a team. It was, scientists um know, a lot of subject matter experts it was writers it was designers and image processors so neither kelly nor i are professional image processors kelly i'm sure has done some of it <laughs> but but um when the data come in you know uh it it looks like a you know it's just zeros and ones really but um and then it, it's like a, a black screen so there's nothing there That you would see immediately. What they have to do a lot of processing, the data are there, but the the differences in brightness, um, you can't really, you know, they're very subtle. So you kind of have to, what's called stretching the image, it's increasing the contrast, right? So between the brightest parts and the darkest parts. And you also are looking at not all the colors of infrared light are coming to us in one piece it's like you're getting separate colors um and you'll get a black and white kind of a, a sort of a black and white image from each gosh i'm not explaining it very well but <laughs> put it this way it's like getting single colors and then you have to combine them to make a full color image um so there's a lot of processing that goes on um, it's not like the thing to know is that it's all data and all that, all those processing. It's just like translating it into um, the colors that we can see. It's combining the colors so that you have a full color image and it's not just say black and white or just red. Um, I don't know if that answers your question.
1: I think Dad. it does. I think it does. It it almost sounds like you're filtering the, the colors uh, with the ones and the zeros. Yep. And so that you're getting certain colors in the spectrum for the different stars. I guess the one thing, and maybe this goes back to, to Kelly, uh, the colors then must mean something. And so it's not just a pretty decorative uh, a decorative scene. How do you, is there a way to equate the colors with what we're seeing astronomically?
4: yes, it's not just a pretty picture, although they are very pretty. Um, So what our image processors do is they use something called chromatic order. So they take the longest wavelength, um, the reddest light, and they assign that red. They take the shortest wavelength, the uh, bluest light, and they assign that blue. They pick something in the middle, and they assign that green. And as you said, each of these are coming through different filters, which take a very narrow wavelength range image. Um, So sort of like a a red, green, blue filter, um, but in the infrared. And then you combine those together and you can use that um, to look for different features. So for example, um, the, the dust might show up as something that's very red, and the stars might show up as something that's very blue, although it depends a little bit on the context of the image and what you're looking at. But yes, the reason that we make color images is because they give us additional information about the science.
1: So then, uh, Margaret, I would imagine that when you are then describing the pictures that you see, and maybe we can go through and you can read what the few of the pictures, uh, what the writing was like, you've really got to take what you're seeing color-wise and make sure that the science behind it is is accurate so that we're we're getting an accurate portrait of the colors and the stars and the wavelengths and anything else that we're seeing. I would imagine that um, there were some surprises that we got with the James Webb Telescope going forward. Um, it, am I am I right about that? Can we talk about that a little bit?
3: Absolutely. <laughs> there's there's a lot of nuances to that, um, right? So one thing to know that um, yes, we we when we're describing these images um, for whatever purpose it is, of course, there is. So much science in there, there's so there's a lot of we put a lot of value on the precision of that writing to make sure that what we're saying is um, as accurate as we can be as precise as we can be uh, to make sure that it's not misleading, but at the same time, it's kind of like how we deal with imagery actually at the same time as a writer. You know, you can't help but want to make it sound awesome as well right? and and um, and sound beautiful and poetic if you can. But there's a trade off there, because what can sound really great could also be very misleading or just plain wrong. Um, so. We, um, the writers work very closely with the scientists. Kelly has been extremely helpful in looking at our writing and, and being, you know, being very nitpicky. And I say that with the most, uh, with the most positive, I, 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 I consider nitpicky a very positive term guys. Cause nobody That's wants a technical term, right? That's yeah. a, technical a technical term.
1: Astronomy term.
3: It's, yes. and, and it's very important because no one wants nits. And, <laughs> so, um, and, um. And and I, I you know, we we want it to be very accurate. So one of the things to know though is that, um, so when we we put together the information, it's, you know, we've got the images. The images are one part of a big news package. So we've got images, we've got um, captions, like long captions describing the science in those. Um, We've also got, uh, news articles that kind of like build the story of of what the science and the and the sorry the you know the the technique that happened you know that went on how the instruments work um how people felt when they saw the images all that and so the alt text the descriptions that and and the extended descriptions that we have in addition they are one extra thing in there and i like to think of them as sort of um they kind of fill the gap, right? So you all clearly, you know, under, uh, understand clearly what what this this the purpose of the alt text and the extended descriptions. But for those who don't use them, um, we try to explain. It's like you know, if you can't access the image for whatever reason, this this description has to provide that experience, and so. What is that experience? Well, we get a lot of the science in the article and the caption, which is great, but what's really missing is um, you know, sometimes it's just that, that feeling, the feeling that the images convey. Sometimes it's the, the details that you are assuming someone um, is getting from the image. Like, um, you know, <laughs> uh, so I can um, kind of describe, I can, I'm happy to read some of these to give you kind of an example there um,
1: yeah i would i would love to to hear some of that and i think the audience would too and then love to go back to 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 kelly and, and talk about maybe some of the science behind what you're reading okay uh, that'd be great thank you
3: okay great okay well i am going to start with um probably the most famous i would say at this point is probably a famous image <laughs> um okay This is um, the Cosmic Cliffs of the Carina Nebula, all right, Okay. The image is divided horizontally by an undulating line between a cloudscape forming a nebula along the bottom portion and a comparatively clear upper portion. Speckled across both portions is a star field, showing innumerable stars of many sizes. The smallest of these are small, distant, and faint points of light. The largest of these appear larger, (laughs) closer, brighter, and more fully resolved with eight pointed diffraction spikes. The upper portion of the image is bluish and has wispy translucent cloud-like streaks rising from the nebula below. The orangish cloudy formation in the bottom half varies in density and ranges from translucent to opaque. The stars vary in color, the majority of which have a blue or orange hue. The cloud-like structure of the nebula contains ridges, peaks, and valleys, an appearance very similar to a mountain range. Three long diffraction spikes from the top right edge of the image suggest the presence of a large star just out of view.
4: Gosh, isn't that pretty? Uh so I guess uh so this is Kelly and I'll talk a little bit about the science of the image you just heard. So what we're looking at or what we just listened to is a description of an image of a star forming region. So stars like our sun, a sun our sun is a star, stars form in these cold, dark, dusty clouds of gas and dust. And we're looking inside of one of these star forming regions. And we're seeing just the edge of it. And so at the bottom half of the image, we're seeing an area where stars are actively forming. And above that and just out of frame are some newly formed stars. And these newly formed stars are very hot and very bright. And they're eroding the nebula around them, sort of like a a waterfall eroding the rocks around them. So they're destroying the nebula that they were born in. And we're so we're seeing right in this image the interplay between those uh, bright hot stars destroying the nebula and the nebula itself, which is forming new baby stars.
1: And and we couldn't have seen that with the Hubble telescope.
4: Ah, uh, yeah. So we there is actually a Hubble image of this same region of the Carina Nebula. But what we can see with the web image is we can see much further into the nebula. We can see into this dark, dusty portion of it, and we can see the stars forming inside and some of the jets and outflows that they're doing uh, inside of this nebula. So we're getting more information about what happens inside of a star-forming nebula.
1: Wow. And, And Clark, tell me about diffraction spikes. Do you remember?
2: Tell you, you want me to tell you <laughs> about diffraction spikes when we're surrounded by experts. But uh, <laughs> as, what you will learn about me, uh, <laughs> folks, is that I know very little about a whole lot. And what I can tell you is that diffraction spikes are created by the edges of the uh, the mirrors in these telescopes. And I can tell you that images from the James Webb telescope often have six diffraction spikes. And the images from Hubble often have four (laughs) diffraction spikes. Kelly, what did I leave out?
4: No, that was actually a very good explanation.
1: (laughs) I am amazingly impressed, Clark. I would not have been able to say that myself. Put you on the spot and you come and hit a home run that's amazing but i i think that you know that's part of the detail that we're seeing uh with the the web telescope that we didn't see before and and to me i find that level of detail fascinating so that we're seeing you know the the astronomy is matching what we're seeing visually margaret do you have another um a description from any I other do. description for us oh i hope yes so. i Thank do you.
3: um i also wanted to point out something here that you know the diffraction spikes um that we were talking about um you know what kind of makes you know it's that classic star pattern right that when people draw a star <laughs> um the the pattern um it scientifically you know it's not really part of the science of the image but we always describe it because it is characteristic of the images and it's part of the aesthetics of the images. Um, The image processors sometimes will remove the diffraction spikes um, if they can because it reveals some other scientific aspects like sometimes you don't want them but oftentimes they leave them in because it's what captures people's attention. And it, and it also, the, the specific pattern does tell you this is a web image versus this is a Hubble image, um, which is exciting. It's exciting also for us when you get familiar with it to be like, oh yes, I can tell that's a web image. And people like think that you're really smart because you just did it off the, off the pattern. Um, anyway.
2: Margaret, so, before, before yeah. we go yeah. on here. So just mm-hmm. to clarify, the the diffraction spikes are Made by how the telescopes capture the data. So, for somebody who's blind who has never seen, uh, you know, a picture of our sun or looked at the night sky, uh, you mentioned the classical shape of a star, whether it's a five-pointed star or six-pointed star. But either, uh, either when standing on earth and looking up at the sky to look at a star or if we were able to fly in a spaceship very very close to a star what what does a star actually look like
3: kelly you want to answer that question sure so when you're looking up at the night sky
4: stars just look like teeny tiny little points of light um and sometimes the stars will twinkle, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And that's because we're looking through the atmosphere and the atmosphere is kind of wavy. And so they they might flicker in brightness a little bit. If you went to a spaceship and you could travel to our sun or another star, it would look like a giant ball of glowing gas. So they are big glowing spheres. Um, and so when we look at stars through telescopes, we see these spikes and that's completely a product of the structure of the telescope itself it's an artifact that telescopes make but people think they look cool I mean I think they look cool
3: <laughs> um after this too I will send you guys a link to where we have this cool infographic which I believe Kelly worked on <laughs> to um, I did. describe it and the infographic itself has all text on it so it should be um think that's right. Anyway, <laughs> we'll make sure that it does. Um, okay. So let me read, I'm going to, um, I'm going to read a long, longish, well, one of our long descriptions of something called the deep field. Um, and let me just not tell you what it is at all. I'm just going to read the description. Okay. <laughs> um, Ken, and then Kelly will give you some more. All right, this image shows many overlapping objects at various distances. They include foreground stars, galaxies in a galaxy cluster and distorted background galaxies behind the galaxy cluster. The background of space is black. Thousands of small galaxies appear across the image. The colors vary, some are shades of orange, others are white. Most appear as fuzzy ovals, but a few have distinctive spiral arms. In front of the galaxies are several foreground stars. Most appear blue with diffraction spikes forming eight pointed star shapes. Some look as large as the galaxies that appear next to them. A very bright star is slightly off center. It has eight blue long Diffraction spikes in the center of the image between the four o'clock and six o'clock positions in the bright star spikes are several bright white galaxies. These are members of the galaxy cluster. There are also many thin long orange arcs. They follow invisible concentric circles that curve around the center of the image. These are images of background galaxies that have been stretched and distorted by the foreground galaxy cluster. So Kelly will give some more information here. But the thing I wanted to point out here is that longer description kind of combined what you see visually with some of the explanation. And we felt that was important because we felt that writing those long descriptions gave us us the opportunity to make those connections stronger um, for the listener or the reader or anybody who was using this. this information.
4: Yeah. And this is also a case of universal design. I heard from a lot of people who are cited who read either the alt text or this extended description, and it really helped them understand a lot more what's going on in this image. Because as you heard, there's a lot going on. Um, So a little bit about the science. We are seeing um, the entire three-dimensional universe in this one image. So starting closest to us, we're seeing several bright stars from our own Milky Way galaxy. And these are huge and they take up a big portion of the image. These are these points of light that have these eight diffraction spikes. And then behind that, we are seeing a galaxy cluster, which is outside of our own galaxy. So galaxies are things that are made up of stars and gas and dust and dark matter. And these look like sort of fuzzy oval blobs. And these galaxies are living together in a galaxy cluster. They're gravitationally attracted to each other. And there's uh, so much mass in this galaxy cluster, both in the cluster, in the galaxies, and between the galaxies, that it is warping the fabric of space time. So that's completely wild, right? This is something that Einstein predicted, and we can see it in this image. And the way we can see this is we are looking at light that is traveling from behind the galaxy cluster. It travels through the galaxy cluster, and it makes these distorted shapes, these arc-like shapes. Um, and so th- those are those orange arcs that you heard in this image. So we are seeing very distant galaxies magnified and distorted by this natural lens, this sort of lousy natural lens, but we'll take what we can get. Um, And so this allows us to see galaxies um, whose light have been traveling to us for over 13 billion years. It's a really cool image. And uh, this is the image that I got most excited about when I saw these first images from the Webb telescope.
1: It's just amazing the science that is behind the arcs that you see here, the orange arcs and the light. And of course, Mm -hmm. you can you can tell you can tell so much from the science behind it because you know what you're seeing. I think what impresses me, and I think a lot of people, has been just the immensity of what we're looking at. We've (laughs) never seen this much detail, this much color, this much much richness before. And then to be able to have not only a picture that we can put in our minds, but to know what the science is behind it is just awesome um in it i work for another federal agency and our descriptions for all text are two what 240 characters and so we would say a blue star or a red star or orange whatever orange pattern but nothing like this and you know not only have you put a vivid description together so it's a lot like reading as i said uh, i've said like reading arthur c clark or isaac asimov that kind of description but there's science behind it and this is real so just really impressive clark what do you think
2: uh, as is often the case my mind is once again blown <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Kelly Margaret, I'm curious, do you all have a favorite image that's come from the James Webb? And if possible, could you share the alt text of if you had to pick one, um what your favorite image would be?
3: Oh, man, that's hard <laughs> <laughs> um, Kelly, do you?
4: I do. So I think my favorite image so far is of a forming star uh, called a, a protostar and I have the alt text in front of me so I will try my best to read it for you all. A forming protostar surrounded by a large hourglass shaped nebula. A bright orange object, the protostar, lies at the center of this image. In front of the protostar is a thin gray line which is the protostar's accretion disk. Above the protostar is an orange triangular cloud of gas that points to the top left of the image. The area closest to the protostar is brighter orange than the area to the top left and has more pronounced plumes of orange gas. Below the protostar is another triangular cloud of gas uh, that points to the bottom right of the image. The area closest to the protostar is a blend of pronounced blue and orange plumes of gas. Further towards the bottom right, the color of the gas turns primarily blue. Stars and galaxies of many different shapes and sizes are scattered around the image, although they are noticeably more absent on the left side of the hourglass. Wow,
1: that's amazing. And and the science behind that, what does the science tell you? The
4: science behind that is we have a forming star at the center of the image and it's embedded again in this dark dusty cloud which we can't really see in the image but it has curved out an hourglass shaped nebula so a cone at the top and a cone at the bottom of the star and it's also lighting up this cone with these really beautiful colors of orange and blue um, and so it's telling us that it's like hi i'm here i'm you know just being born and around the center of the star, we th- see a very thin line, and that line is a disk that's probably forming planets right now. So this is a baby star forming its own planets, and we get to see oh, its baby wow. picture. It's, it's
1: beautiful. It's wonderful. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I was doing something else, listening to the uh, WTOP on, I guess it was Thursday or Friday. And they said that uh, there are some new galaxies that have just been discovered that are uh, just uh, I don't know six hundred million years old or something like that relatively new that they come across with the space with the web space telescope. So more and more things being discovered all the time. Everyone just seems so excited by them. It's Mm -hmm. trying to put them in perspective. That's hard. Yeah, exactly. All these new discoveries. And, and Clark, I mean, I know you and I can ask questions for, you know, another hour or whatever. Uh, but also you said that, that uh, uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute will be coming to the hybrid, uh, to the in-person convention uh, on the 11th. So do you want to talk about coming attractions or so what, do you, what, what uh... are you going to do there?
2: I will, Pat, and and you are correct. I I could keep our guests here for <laughs> hours just asking questions, not only about the images, the alt text, how it's created, um, and the the science behind that is um, often separate from the the alt text visual descriptions as well. So I, I was glad you asked about the science behind that last image, also. Yes. Uh, at the in-person DC leadership conference for the American Council of the Blind, we will have representatives from the Space Telescope Science Institute. So, what we've talked about a lot here today is the alt text that is created uh, for the data, the images, the infographics, and uh, and that is made available. in In our previous con- conversations, we also talked about the the sound or audio rep- representations of these images and infographics. And our, our guests teased something else that was coming. And we are excited that the Space Telescope Science Institute Institute will be sharing with us in person their tactile graphics, their hands-on tactile Uh, representations of these images and we'll be able to have more conversations. We'll be able to listen and read the alt text while exploring the tactile images for just a a multi-sensory mind melt. Um, So it's a good thing this is early in the day because I will be just (laughs) exhausted um, after doing this once or twice, but we are we are really excited. We know that there, there are a few things that we, we hope they'll be able to bring and show us, but some things are larger and more complex than others. Um, but we are very excited that these tactile graphics, which are being developed and being shared with museums and libraries around the country, oh, that they'll nice. be able to bring uh, several of those in person to the ACBDC Leadership Conference on the morning of Saturday, March 11th at the Hilton Alexandria Old Town. And again, registration still open. Still open. And, you, and you can visit the ACB website, acb.org, for registration information. And,
1: and I was not aware that humans could do mind melds, but I think that's going to be fascinating if that's the case. Um, looking forward to that experience because I, I plan to be at that event. Um, I'm afraid we may have to open it up so that other people can ask questions. What do you think, Clark? We probably should.
2: I guess while we're getting the uh, the folks in the audience to raise their hands, either Margaret, uh, could you share with our audience um, the relationship between the Space Telescope Science Institute and NASA?
3: Sure. Yeah, sure. So STSCI, um, we're in Baltimore City. Um, we were founded in 1981 um, um, specifically to manage science operations for the Hubble Space Telescope. So this this was nine years before Hubble even launched. Um, and we are a NASA contractor. So we are separate from NASA, independent from NASA, but also dependent on NASA. <laughs> um, so we... Um, yeah, so we have several contracts with them to do various things like science operations for Hubble, which basically means we get all the data, we make sure it's ready for the scientists, we deal with all the proposals, that sort of thing. For web, we do science operations and we also do mission control. So we are in our office in Baltimore is where, um, where, engineers are sitting at the controls, telling um, Webb what to do, um, which is very, very exciting. (laughs) Um, And we also are um, one of the science operations center for the upcoming Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which should launch around 2026 or so, um, which is also an awesome, awesome space telescope. Um, Yeah. Um, Does that answer your question, Clark? (laughs)
2: <laughs> it does it does thank right. you so mm-hmm. uh very closely tied to NASA but not yes. part of uh the the federal administration so thank you
0: hi I think I had a qu- <laughs> hi I don't think I had a question but this is just fascinating because you know I had seen this presentation at, at the convention too and I can't wait to see it again at the DC leadership meetings just all the um the technical aspects and and the brilliance of the team is just amazing so i just want to compliment you guys thank you
3: thank you all right mary hi thank you yeah this has been um very amazing um just a one question well I, many questions but um i've always wanted to know what exactly is a black hole
4: okay i can take this one so this is kelly <laughs> Uh, Thank you, a, Kelly. Black, <laughs> a black hole is something that is so dense, its gravity is so strong that not even light can escape. So there, is, there are different types of black holes. Some black holes are about the same mass as our sun or a couple tens of times the mass of our sun. And there are also something called supermassive black holes, and those are usually found at the center of galaxies, and those have millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. Uh, And so a black hole is just a point. It's a very curved point in space time. And once you fall into a black hole, there's no escaping.
3: Wow. And are they varying sizes? They
4: do. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, stellar mass black holes, things that are sort of the same size as our sun, they formed at the end of the lifetime of a massive star when the star collapses in on itself. It can't support itself um, against gravity and it collapses down into one point. We're not quite sure where supermassive black holes come from. They may... Just uh, start the same way and just keep eating so much mass; they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Or they might be primordial; they might come out shortly after the Big Bang. Um, this is something that actually Webb might give us some clues about where these early supermassive black holes come from. Well, okay,
3: I, I thank would, you. I would just like to add, and Kelly um, can correct me if I'm saying something weird, but um, you know, you can't so you can't really see a black hole, but you can see the effects of it. So we can see how stars are, um, how the gravity of that black hole is affecting the orbits of stars. And we can see how it, you know, things like speed up and give off energy. So we can see the light of material that is kind of being affected by the black hole. Yep,
5: Okay. great. Vanessa. Um, obviously, Pat has had access to some of this. So, you know, at least for those of us who are in the local Baltimore area, and maybe it's not even excluded to that that area, how do we access some of that? Because this is just
6: cool.
3: Um, yeah, so uh, we have um, Space Telescope Science Institute, our Office of Public Outreach, we have a number of websites. And mm-hmm. so all of our... Um, All of the images, all of the articles, all of the alt text, everything is on a number of websites, which we can give. I guess if we give to Clark and Pat, you can pass along to everybody on the call. But oh, please um, do. Yeah. So it's all, um, yeah, it's all there. (laughs) (laughs) This is Clark.
2: I think one of the main ways is there's a blog, correct? And it's WebTelescope. Is dot
3: WebTelescope.org. Yes. Web to, And
2: that's web with two B's, W E B B telescope.org, is God a great right. place Correct. for everyone to start.
3: Yeah. And um, and there was
1: also a podcast that uh, at least I listened to it. I think it was uh, end of September last year. And that really gave a lot of the history that I happen to remember, uh, where we got also just, just oh, help me, Clark. I uh, just, Fractions spikes
2: <laughs> yes, you got it. You, you nailed it.:
5: Yeah, I visited the Huntsville Space Museum twice and in in the one area, huge room that has um, uh, the Saturn rocket uh, it's actually hanging from the ceiling sideways way back in the day, it was actually outside on a flatbed truck. but they do have some things that are interactive that, that I could listen to so while I definitely don't have the mind. I hate math and science and 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 that, you know, the, the mathematical calculations. But I like I like the looking at it, exploring it. And so it was just neat to go through some of those things that I could take advantage of. Um, I have some vision, but still, you know, it was nice to be able to hear some audio stuff. So this is just way beyond cool.
4: Oh, awesome. I'm glad you think it's cool. I think it's cool. Yeah. I might be biased.
0: Absolutely agree. Okay, Pat, that's all your hands for now.
2: Okay. Pat, this is Clark. May I ask another question? Sure.
1: Yeah, I was just checking the time. Make sure we could squeeze in a couple more questions.
2: Yeah. All right. So last time uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with the folks from the the space telescope science institute one of the, image, the images that was discussed was of neptune
3: mm-hmm. and we had a
2: nice little conversation about how pluto is no <laughs> longer a planet uh, some say the king of the kuiper belt and we can we can agree to disagree uh, what is the moniker to remember the planet's names if we can no longer say my very excellent mother just served us nine pizzas.
4: So it's uh, my very excellent mother just served us nachos.
2: <laughs> Nicely done. Non. No, I. Like pizza. Uh, I'm glad Kelly had that on the tip of her tongue because
1: I would have. <laughs> well. oh, um, that was Kelly. Good. That's
3: Kelly. Kelly. And, and I will just tell you uh, my my background before doing this is planetary geology. So I to me, any if it's spherical and it's rocky, it's a planet. But that's, you know, so geologists and astronomers have sort of sometimes differ in how they c- classify objects. Mm-hmm. And all right Pluto two, is sitting there saying, I'm still Pluto, no matter what you call me, I'm, I'm still Pluto. All <laughs> right, two verse one.
2: Pat, what's your answer? Pluto oh, a planet or not? Oh, absolutely. It's a planet. Oh, Kelly, you're outnumbered. I don't, number care, two. What you, oh, I don't no! care what you call <laughs> it. am <I'm> still Pluto.
1: <laughs> I like that. Clark, uh, what's what's your vote? Your vote?
2: Oh, Pluto. Pluto's a planet.
1: Okay. Yeah. Very good. You thought it was a streaming service, right?
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Or a dog from Disney. <laughs> um,
1: oh, I hate to let this 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 group go. This has been so much fun for me. I've really enjoyed it. Margaret, uh, Kelly, any last thoughts on what you've seen, what you're looking forward to? What are we going to what can we expect in the next 6 months?
3: Oh, so I, I, it's so much, so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to say something to to you all. Um, so we, uh, you know, this writing this alt text, we we've been um, you, you know, it's been it's part of, we've been able to have alt text for a, for a long time, but it's only recently that we were able to have sort of long. Robust descriptions, because um, in the past we had a, a, a technical limit of, of you know very what sixty characters one hundred twenty characters mm-hmm. we, we we increased that because um, we realized you know it's impossible <laughs> you can't describe things adequately um, and and uh, we the this when we did this. These description for these early release observations we knew it was important we like we you know we put a lot of effort into it, but I don't think the team had any any idea how important it was until people started to react <laughs> with it in in such a wonderfully positive way We had no idea how many people were relying on it, how many people um kind of yeah we're touched <laughs> by it we're uh-huh. touched by it yes yeah. and so the the response has had this wonderful effect on the team, on the writing team, on the educator, on the whole, on everybody. In that number one, the team was like, oh, how nice it is to know that we have an audience. You know, we sit in our offices sometimes and we're just, we don't know who we're, we're just like this, we don't know who we're writing to. (laughs) Um, So suddenly we know who our audience is. It made us want to put more effort into it. It made us want to, we have a ton of legacy content, you know, 33 years of Hubble imagery, right? Um, Only a small bit of that have we been able to describe in detail. And we are putting extra effort into that. We actually hope to get more people on board specifically working on that. Kelly and I are working on that to make that happen. Um, And then the effect that, It has on other, I'm hoping that you all are are seeing this effect in general that other organizations are kind of being like feeling a little bit, gosh, like uh, left out. Like, oh shoot, maybe (laughs) I should, maybe, uh, maybe I can write something as cool as this. Why is Space Telescope getting all this this, uh, press? Like here's, I can write a nice description. So people are kind of getting into this. Um, I told Pat the other day, one of the funniest things that happened to me was i was in my neighborhood w- walking and i ran into a neighbor and he's like talking about the images and he's like oh and i just read he's like i just read in the washington post about this alt tech stuff how do i get a hold of that i want to see that and I was like well well john like You don't need the alt text like you you can see the picture and he's like no i i want to read this alt text so you know people are feeling left out when they don't have the screen reader so i just think this is just so so wonderful i mean
4: yes similar feelings to margaret um i i tweeted about this a little bit and i just got all of this these wonderful things people connecting with me on social media. I didn't know there were so many blind space nerds out there, but like, (laughs) gosh, now (laughs) I'm really energized to make sure that these descriptions are there, they're written well, and they're scientifically accurate. Um, And, you know, space is for everyone. And by everyone, I mean everyone. And I'm really glad to meet people where they are and give them the tools they need to access this. Pat, you have
1: one hand if you would like to take it. We'll take the one hand, yes,
5: thank you. Vanessa, go ahead. Yeah, it's me again. Um, uh, This reminds me, uh, and Pat will know where I'm coming from, very much of the Unity Project with respect to national parks and that time is taken to describe this stuff. Um, But the other thing that initially got me interested was, uh, and this was put into several Braille volumes, uh, there was touching the stars, touching the sun, touching I don't know what all, which, uh, you know, had text written in Braille, but had um, uh, thermoform graphs of the planets and and Lord knows I don't know what all else. I actually have one of the books, um, but, um, you know, audio description in, or even text to speech or, or something that's well done, well written is just.
1: Oh gosh! Oh, it's priceless—just priceless. I'd like to thank Margaret and Kelly, and certainly we—I've talked to Claire. I've talked to Tim. Please pass along our thanks for the work that the team is doing, and please keep up the good work. This has just been amazing. Oh. Clark, your friends have are just magnificent, <laughs> and, and I want to thank. Clark and his friend for coming. Uh, you're making them a, guilty
2: by association <laughs> with that. but I, I do I do want to just say thank you for spending time with us again as well. and uh, to echo Veronica the the work you do and the work you do to share um, the cosmos with all of us it is priceless. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much. It's
3: a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. And yes um, thank you. yeah.
4: Good. We're glad to be here.
1: Thanks so much let's do one door prize
3: all <laughs> right so we have another deck
0: of
7: braille uno cards
0: you know cards
7: computer give me a random number between
0: one and 140
1: here's a number between one and 140 it's 126
0: 126 let me see who is one no computer stop i was talking to myself all right one twenty six <laughs> Diane Scalzi you're going to play uno um we we thought in the interests of inclusiveness, and we've never had any information at our conventions about the experience of uh, experiences of the Native American population and and being blind and uh, Native American in the United States and in maryland so basically um I would like to. Introduce first. Uh, Sandra Burset is going to speak, and um, she is from Maryland, uh, but she will tell you all about her journey. Um, and I met her at the uh, Bism, which is Blind Industries and Services of Maryland Senior Support Group, and she used to be the vice president. She's an awesome person, and um, she is a Chickasaw Native American Indian, and she's going to talk to you about all her struggles, her education, her employment, any discrimination she encountered, you know, her family background and all that. So uh, here you go, uh Sandra. Hi y'all. How's everyone doing?
6: Good. Okay. Welcome. Here we go. Here's something to break it break it down. Y'all wanted me to, to uh, top the one just left, right? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Well the first thing you know there's a girl named Sandra. Honestly, and then the next thing you knew, there wasn't no more food. So then my uncles had loaded up the truck. And then they took my daddy and they looking for a job. Jobs, that is, wasn't none where we were. The next thing you knew, they headed to Ohio. They found some, but my daddy found none. Then they sent him to a town called a State called Maryland. And then my daddy found a job, and he sent for us. Mama loaded up, Mama loaded up the truck. Wasn't no black gold there. Oh man, wasn't no black gold there. No, no Texas tea. So she loaded up the car and all of us. And met my daddy there. I didn't like it much. Fried on the steps, steps every night. Don't like this place. So I want to go home, homes that is, back to Tennessee. No movie stars, just plenty of green pastures and birdie hills. But my parents say no, and I'm still stuck here. That's my story, y'all. Y'all come back now. you hear?
3: here. Uh,
6: That's all I got for y'all.
3: Well, if you think
6: so- that's how I felt when I first came here. we left to see when I was about five. and um coming from I had lived on a um, like a family farm. We had acres and acres of land, and it was all open space, beautiful. you had hills and acres of land and animals and horses and beautiful. And if you ever been to Tennessee and saw Smoky Mountains in that area, then you know what I'm talking about. So jobs, you know, jobs for sparing. So you had to leave and go find work elsewhere. So my daddy left him and my uncles. So they went to Ohio first. There wasn't no job there for him. Not for what he did, steeplejack. You know, that kind of work. So he found one in Maryland. They told him to go to Maryland, so he found one there. So after he worked for a while and then saved some money up, he sent for us, and then we came here. So it wasn't too easy for me once we got here, you know. I'm I'm looking real strange. I mean, there's no fields, there's no animals, nothing, no pond. I mean, it's, I don't know what blacktop is, concrete, houses connected together. I didn't know what any of that was. And then the school was just, just, that was crazy. I'm going to school with my little poncho on, you know, I've got moccasins on, long hair. They're calling me names, you know, Pocahontas, Rapunzel. I was upset at first. My mama told me just smile and say thank you. That's a compliment. And I'm like, okay. Didn't feel like it, but I'm like, all right. So I just kept telling them thank you and smile, like she said. And eventually they would stop. But then when I would speak, you know, they always wanted me to count to 10. And certain things I said, they would make kind fun of me, like, hold on. And certain words they would always say, and they would laugh. So I was like, okay, I'm entertaining. All right. So I would say certain things again. They would laugh. So I learned to think I was funny. I thought I was, you know, but I then I learned it really wasn't. They were making fun of me, like I thought. But all right, get past that. Go to junior high. But my mama had adopted. There was she had five of her own, but then they were older. I was the youngest. We got here though, she adopted, took in two boys. They were brothers. Excuse me. They were going to be taken away and separated. So my mama didn't want that for them. So she took them in. Later on, when I went to elementary school, she took in another girl because there was abuse in the home. So he wound up taking her in. So we were going to go to junior high, it was time to get her to school. So I called her my sister. She was going to a high, different junior high. I'm thinking I'm going to that school. Okay, two weeks before that school starts, <coughs> Excuse me. I get a letter saying I can't go to that school. I have to go to a different school. My mother don't understand why. We try to find out why. They say, well, <clears throat> excuse me, because of segregation. We're going to send her to a different high school. Unless, as says, well, my other daughter's going to a different school. Why can't they go together? No. She's already going there. She's existing there. This is this her first time she's going to go to the other school. So I went on to the other school. That school was the first year of the segregation. So there was only 10 new students going that year to that school. And I was one. So they had a couple of Asian, a couple of um, Caucasian. I was the Native American. And I think um, I think that was it. There's 10 of us. So. Excuse me one sec. <coughs> so during that year, by the end of the year, I was the only one left out of the ten. I didn't pay it no money. I was cool with it. They tried to get out, but most of them got beat up. They just didn't seem to get along. They were afraid. I I it was it was crazy. I mean I'm not saying it was the safest area, but they just just didn't seem to get along. They just act like Dave was afraid and intimidated and I'm not saying it was as a safe area. I mean it really didn't want us there, but you just didn't um you had to try to get along with the the kids in the school too, to let them understand that we knew it was their area, yes. But you had to let them know that too. They didn't want us there, and you didn't really want to be there. But let let them feel that you are, you know, wanting to understand them, you know? But they didn't want to, they just wanted to go home. They didn't even want to try to get along. So it didn't work out for them. I stayed there three years. I was fine. Never got beat up, not one time. So, then, but during that time, my mama developed rheumatoid arthritis when I was eleven. So I had to take care of my mama too. And um that wasn't an easy time. So that made it a little harder on me. Sometimes I had to go home and leave and take care of her. And then wasn't so much the people in the school as it was on the outside. So when you if you had to leave, you had to run because they would throw bricks and bottles and stuff at you. So you had to run. You couldn't wait for a bus. So that was not, you know, an easy time. But see, it wasn't in the school, it was outside. So, um... Yeah, so my mom became bedridden when I was 11. From my surgery she had. And developed the rheumatoid arthritis. So then after, um... After that, though, but before that, she had a friendship with another lady who was in a neighborhood from the South. She was from North Carolina. She lived like two blocks up the way. And she had nine children. And it was cool. Her youngest one went to school where I went to school. And he was um, in the neighborhood. So we all were friends, which was cool. And uh, he was Lumbee Indian. She was full-blooded. So... um he was lumpy, And that was that was nice. But then as we got older and we went to high school, he went to a different high school than I did. But um, when I was in high school, right, and um that wasn't a good year. Like, like my last year of junior high, and between that um between junior high and high school, my dad was murdered. And um, then I wanted to go. You know, I went home every up to when my mom got became bedridden. Soon as school was out, I would go home. I would go back to Tennessee to my memos. But to, up to that time, my mom got, became bedridden. Then I couldn't go no more because I had to stay and take care of her. But that summer when my dad was murdered, that April, that summer, I got to go home to his sister's house and my papa's house to be, you know, with family for a while. I needed that break. And um, then when I came back, I started dating Gary, which was the boy I'm talking about. And uh, then his father passed that September. And um, that wasn't a good time. And we wound up dating and then uh, for a couple of years. And then we married after we finished high school. And then he went into the military. So I wound up taking care of both mamas. And then we had a baby girl. So, which was a good time. It was a so good, she was a, she's a beautiful girl. And um, so, but during work history, my last year of high school, it became um, hard, a little bit harder. But they would test you, to, to get the, the guidance counselors then tested you to see where you um, test better at this kind of employment. Or where you needed to go, like for college or where you needed different things or where you would do better at. And mine was business. So every business class there was in that high school, I had. I taken it. I had it. So that last year of high school, I went to school a, a week and worked a week. So when I came back to school that second week, I had two weeks of school work to make up in that one so, and I did that, that's how I went. And I worked um, at um, State Highway Administration for the Bureau of Special Projects. I love that job, it was my, that was my first state job. And I worked there six months temporary because it's, you know, the job that they, they needed, they hired for just to, you know, provide a job for a student to give them a chance to see what it was like for them, you know, deployment. And but before I left there, Another place had heard about you know my um, how I did in school and also how I did there. And it was for data processing at another state employment. i never I've never looked for a job. I was so blessed, never looked for a job. And um they had called for me to come up there for data processing. And so I had went there to see what it was about and tested there, and um got the job. And I went there to work right after I finished, you know, my six months at the other place, the state highway. I went to data processing. And then when it came time to have my daughter, I told them I wanted to, um, to resign or take a leave for a while because I wasn't sure I wanted to at least be home the first year. And then they said they didn't want me to do that. So I at well, least want to be the first year. I want to, I want to be home. So they agreed. And um, so I'm taking care of both mamas and my daughter while he was away, you know, in the military. But um, then I stayed there for several years. I went back after she was 13 months old. And then um, another uh, lady had came down from another department. She will make tests for her department. And it was during the daytime making more money. And I was like, I don't know. She said, it's a whole lot of responsibility. I can't keep anyone. I wish you'd come and test for it. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know right now. Well, at least come up and interview for it. So I did. Then it took a couple weeks ago, she came back down again. I don't know. I think you're the first. I think you're the one. I want you to come back again. So I'm back up there again. Third, they called me back up there the third time. She said, something tells me it's you. I want you to do it. She said, I can't keep anybody. And you keep testing. I said, I want you to do it. So I stayed there the longest. I was there for like 10 years. And then each department wanted to go individual. It was good for all the boards, anything medical related. It's where, you know, nursing, social workers, doctors, anything medical related. We had to license them do the renewals for them. And it was only me and a lady doing it all. Two of us. We had to do all the renewals for nursing, their verifications, their doctors, all of them. And it was like 26 boards and two of us. It was a lot of work. But we did it. But but it was kind of funny how she, she wanted certain and she was funny in who she would give interviews to. And I would say, well, why do you you I only seem to pick certain people? Well, I don't want this kind of person, this kind of person. I said, and why not? Well, I think this kind of per- they're lazy. They're lazy. The, I said, well, everyone's not lazy because they're this color or that color or this name or this nationality or that. Well, from what I've seen, they're lazy. <laughs> okay. Everyone in that nationality may not be lazy though. That may be that particular person. She said, no, I don't agree with that. She said, but from what I've seen, okay, you're going to judge one or two people by, you know, one or two persons by that one person. I said, that's okay. not good. She said, yeah, but I've hired so many people of this race or this, this is what's happened. I can't keep, I said, but look how many different boards it is. This is a stressful job. That's why you can't keep anyone. You want two people to do the job of 10 persons. That's why. That's what it is. You need more people doing this job. But they didn't want to hear that, but that's what the problem was. But then after that, I started, um, after they broke up and I, then they finally said they were going to go individual. Everybody wanted control with their money. Then the problem I started to have problems with like the colors. I noticed that. Like the, the red lights. I couldn't tell anymore what the colors were of the lights when I was driving in the daytime. So I would just follow the traffic. It stopped, I stopped. It it went, I went. And I was like, okay, this is getting weird. Daytime was terrible for me. I would wear two pairs of sunglasses. It was really getting scary. So some, I said, okay, I'm going to have to stop driving. This is not good. So it was like, I didn't understand why. What was going on with the colors? Or was it just the way that I need different sunglasses? What was wrong with my eyes? So I went to a doctor, you know, my regular doctor. He tested my eyes. He said, you've been working a lot of overtime. I said, yes, sir. They said, I want you to go go home, come back in the morning before you go to work. What? I said, it ain't going to make no difference. I'm going to be tired still. Go home and come back. Okay. I don't think it's going to make, just come back in the morning. I went back. I want you to go see a retina specialist. And that's going to change in it. Just please go see the retina specialist. Okay, I'll make an appointment. He says, no, right now. Right now? I go, and they, they said, I have a rare retinal disease that um the symptoms are all reversed of what normally is the case. Usually, you know, people can see in the daytime, and they can't at night. Mine was better at night and not in the daytime. I mean, this is crazy. I said, I, had, I would have two pairs of sunglasses on and still couldn't see. It was it was in the nighttime, I was good. I was good. So I started leaving when it was dark to go to work and I'd have to wait till it was down to go home. I'd be there all that time. But that's what I had to do. So it started gradually going. And my boss would make it so hard for me. She'd make it so hard. By the time I left there, though, it was It was like ten years. Gradually, it w- was going. And then at the end, it went rapid. Where I just, I just lost it. It was gone. So it's been gone now. It's been. It'll be fourteen years in August that I've been totally blind. And nine of those 14, I've been uh, a braille instructor. When I graduated from Blind Industries, Ruth Sager was at my graduation. And she said, what are you going to do Sandra, now to graduate? I said, I don't know, but God's got a plan for me. He didn't let me come this far for me not to do something. And it wasn't a month later, Ruth Sager called me. She said, I want you to come down to the library. The Library for the Blind Apprentices. I said, "When?" she was next week meeting in the library. I said, okay. So it was myself and my girlfriend, Karen, Karen Crosby, Glenda. Y'all know Glenda. Miss Brenda and Carol was five of us. And she wanted all of us to start a program where we would teach braille to all the people at the library. And two of us are still doing it. My girlfriend, Karen, and myself. Us two are still doing it. This is our ninth year that we're doing it at the library for the blind. So we volunteer there, and this is our ninth year doing it. And then the rest all the time, I call on um, on your line, and I and I worry, Miss Sheila. I call on her line. Sometimes, Mister. Let me see. What is it, Mister? Um, uh, what's his name? Is it herbie? sometimes I get on his and I get on the craft one I get um Miss Peggy on there, <laughs> and that's all uh, about all. I think the best thing I've done since I've been here in Maryland now is its uh fine my you know my husband and have my daughter. It's about the best day's work I've done. And made sure my brother made sure that she went to the Indian Center. Here they had one on Broadway, and she learned, you know, the Lumbee ways and learned the tribal dances because that's right there. It's not being taught. People are not; they're not taking and learning, you know, the trade and the dances, the traditions, you know, and that's sad. But my brother had took her because I was working. She had to do um, like the shawl dance and stuff with her great-grandmother. And my brother would do the tribal dances and stuff with her. And we also would go on the weekends and do um, powwows in North Carolina. And my brother was an artist and he could do all the, the artwork on whatever piece you wanted on. If you wanted him to burn it on a skin or on a wooden box or if you want him to draw it on paper and frame it for you, whatever it was he could do. It, it was, it was beautiful. That was all so neat. And that's about all folks. Uh,
0: Meryl, are you? Thank you so much. She went to sleep. Sandra, That was, that was just <laughs> fascinating. Um, and but all you you know, you've had a lot of harrowing experiences in your life. And still, you know, the theme I want to say is that still, despite your struggles, you have achieved a lot and you have overcome. Um Now, <clears throat> the next uh the last panelist in this panel will be Diana Noriega, and mm-hmm. she is a mother, a wife. A caregiver as a matter of fact she does a caregiver's call um, and um, she also is a facilitate Yeah, she's a facilitator and she's also a zoom host and does a lot more so without further ado I would like to introduce Deanna Noriega
8: good evening okay Um, I was born in California because my father who's a full-blood Apache was in the Army, and he happened to be stationed there. My mother was um, half Ojibwa, and her mother was a abandoned baby, so we don't know what she was. We don't think she was Native. Um, she had blue eyes and auburn hair and was fair-skinned. And it's not our way to abandon our babies. (laughs) So, um, but she married a full blood Ojibwa and had um, a total of 12 children in her lifetime. Two of them died as infants due to rickets and, and other vitamin D sufficiency. She was very young when she, the first was born. My mother was her second. And um she had a younger brother who died. And then the rest by then, you know, she was um able to keep the rest alive um to adulthood. Um my mother being the eldest child had a lot of responsibility when her father um disappeared he went down to Chicago to look for a job with a railroad because as Sandra said where the people lived that's where our roots were our families but we couldn't stay there because there were no jobs so a lot of the young men went away into the military um my uncles went away to learn to be steel workers and walk the high beams building um buildings in, in New York City and Chicago and other large you know, large metropolitan areas that wanted multi-story buildings and um, work on dams and anything that was dangerous. <laughs> um, they felt that was the warrior way. So they would leave their families behind on the res and um, go and work spring, summer, and fall and come back in the winters and have to bring back enough money to buy fuel oil for the winters. Um, My mother was born on the Isabella Reservation in Mount Pleasant, um, Michigan, in that area. And at 15, my father saw her selling things door to door with a girlfriend. And uh, went up to her and introduced himself and said, I'm going to marry you. And she just laughed at him. But by the time she was 17, she was sick and tired of, of being the oldest child. When, uh, she was 14 when my grandfather disappeared. She had to quit school and take care of her younger brothers and sisters that were too small to go to school yet. So her mother could become a steel worker in a, in a uh, car manufacturing plant. So she did get married at 16. I was born when she was 17. At four months, she asked the doctor about a problem she saw with me where if I moved from uh, shade to sun, I would often cry and um, turn away from the light. And he diagnosed that I had been born with congenital glaucoma. As far as she knew, there was no one in her family that had had it. And they thought there was probably some genetic connection, but they weren't sure. So um they said when I was older, they could try to do some surgery to open up um channels so that the fluid in the interior part of the eye would not continue to build up and to pressure damage the retina. But I, uh, when I was five, I had my first surgery for glaucoma, and there was some improvement in stabilizing my right eye. And... But when I was seven, I was still having some some trouble at night with a little bit of night blindness. And I was playing with cousins and running in the dark. And I hit a tractor hitch. And, um, of course, it was the right eye, the one that they had the surgery on, that I had the, the better vision in. And we were visiting my Apache grandparents out. In Gonzales, Texas, my father was stationed at Fort Sam Houston, so my mother came running out of the house when she heard me scream and scooped me up, and my grandfather drove us into Gonzales, and all they had was an infirmary. I remember the doctor coming out to see me in just his white pants because they got him out of the shower, and he... He uh, gave me something for the pain and told me that she should go to the military hospital because there was nothing he could do. And she went to the military hospital. We got there, I don't know, sometime in the night. And my mother hadn't brought her purse, so she had no ID to prove that she was a military dependent. So about five in the morning when they were changing shifts, Uh, an army nurse came in and blew her stack and said, are you going to let this child bleed to death? (laughs) Because her mother doesn't have her ID. You know, we can straighten this out in the morning, call an ophthalmologist, get somebody in here. But by then the hemorrhaging had reached a point where all they could do was enucleate that eye. So when I was eight, they scheduled me for a surgery on the weaker of the two eyes. And I could only see by then, colors were getting blurred. My great grandfather had taught me to read when I was three, but by the time I was six um, and recovering from the first surgery, um, the vision in that eye was too blurry for me to read print. And after the injury, of course, I couldn't read print. So they took me out of school and kept me at home until after the second surgery. So I started first grade at eight, um, had the surgery at eight and a half, and um, came out with no vision at all, No, not even light perception. Still had the glaucoma, but <laughs> no light perception. But... I was first born. I had two younger brothers. Is
0: the host now.
8: And I had um, a very wise mother. She had never known anyone who was blind. But um, I think I was upset for about a week. Um, I was telling God off because I'd planned to be a veterinarian and a ballerina, and that was <laughs> going to happen. So, um, I,
4: um, decided that I still felt
8: God was there and I still felt that he cared about me. So it was my job to stop being silly and go back to being a little girl because that's what I was and he would show me what I should do. And so... Um, my mother often had to work to to bring in extra money. Um, by that time, my father was a master sergeant. And he had been in Korea when I was three. And he'd had a traumatic brain injury, which left him prone to violent headaches and very short temper. But my father... Uh, My mother didn't want to leave him, even though he was becoming abusive and violent to us and to her, because I needed medical care. Well, once I was totally blind, um, she was waiting tables and she kept back some of her chip money and saved up. And so when he was on maneuvers before leaving for Germany, she ran away. Um, taking the two of us back to the reservation in Michigan, and was working two and three jobs supporting us. So I was in charge of my younger brothers. I was firstborn daughter, and firstborn daughter is mama's second pair of hands. So I, as soon as I could stand on a chair at age five, I was washing dishes. As soon as I was strong enough to pick up a baby, I was changing diapers. I would come skipping into the house as a little girl and say, what you doing mama? And she'd say, Oh, I'm sewing a patch on your brother's jeans. And I'd say, I want to sew. And she'd say, let me think about it. And then come back. And she took a, uh, the cover off of one of the coloring books in the house. And she punched holes with a darning needle all around the picture on the cover, on the edge of the, of a figure on the, on the cover and gave me a threaded darning needle with yarn on it and she said okay see pull it through like this till it hits the knot now find the next hole and follow the row all the way around and when you're done come tell me if you can tell what it is and so that was how I learned to sew hand sew and before long I was sewing on buttons and sewing seams and making clothes for my Barbie doll and this is the same way I learned to cook and do many other things because my mother said she didn't really know what blind people could or couldn't do so she figured that she would just show me what she could and if I picked it up okay good and if we couldn't figure out a way um, she would just give me other jobs to do and I asked her once was didn't it didn't it scare her when I was totally blind? And she said, the doctor told her, little mama, you've got some hard decisions to make. You can take care of her and baby her and overprotect her and she will be helpless and you will have her to care for all of her life. Or you can continue to treat her as the very bright, happy little girl she is and treat her like you do your other children and let her find out what her road is to be. And that's what my mother did. Um, I was the first one in my family to go to college um, because of the affirmative action. I got in and I got student um, uh, education opportunity grants and I won a small scholarship. And my mother's dream was that I, get a good education, because I remember when I was whining about doing math, which was always hard for me, um, she said, girl, child, you can't wait tables. You can't pump gas. You can't work at the soap factory. So you're going to have to use your very good brain to make your way in the world. So you have to be good in school. That's your job now to be good in school so that you can go to college. And uh, she never cut me any slack. If I got a B, she said, aren't you studying enough? (laughs) And I helped her get her GED. We would study together while we did the ironing. (laughs) Um, So I... I earned money by ironing clothes for all the neighbors. I started a problem child babysitting service because by then there were five of us kids. And if I hadn't learned how to manage kids with no vision when my mother was working, well, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, we would have my my brothers and baby sister wouldn't have survived. So (laughs) um, I was in charge. So, you know, I could. They didn't like me to play hide and seek because I got so good at hearing them breathe that, that I could find them because they'd be trying to hold their breath and stuff and, and trying not to giggle. So okay. There's a reminder on my on my echo dot to tell me that we've got 15 minutes to the end. So I want to close this off pretty soon, but I'll quickly talk about the jobs I had. Um, I worked for the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation in California as an as an independent living home teacher, um, part time when I was in college, because there was nobody in our county that could do that, and they couldn't send someone down from Sacramento um, once a month. Um, I was mainstreamed all the way through school. When I graduated from college. Um, My husband took a a year to get his teaching credential and I did a lot of practicum work that was um, in the area of sociology, psychology, which my degree was in social sciences because I had a college professor who didn't like me very much. Um, It was my own fault when I took an to to psychology class, he wanted us to change someone's behavior with negative and you know positive reinforcement for when they did something we wanted them to do, and negative when they didn't. And so I thought that was very unfair, and it wouldn't pass now. But this was back in the in uh, 1968 when I started college. Um, so. I decided to change his behavior and I got some of my friends from the dormitory to help me. And what we did was we noticed that he was always very solicitous of the pretty girls in class. So I had them sit in the front row and I wanted him to stand still because I was trying to record my lectures and then doing my braille work back in the dorm because the braille was too heavy and, i couldn't take notes without being a disruption because bail riders are not quiet, so um when he was behind the podium and standing still, they would look really attentive, lean forward, and uh, ad- admiringly up at him when he was moving, They would file their nails, look out the window, whisper to each other, pass notes so um, I got him. To stand still, but it didn't work very well because he talked twice as fast because he was nervous with those front row of cute girls all looking at him. <laughs> and when I turned in my project to show the the number of minutes in the day he was standing still, <laughs> he was not very happy. <laughs> so um he said I had to um As my senior one of my senior classes, I had to use electric shock to train a white rat to do something. And I said, If you'll let me use positive reinforcement, I'll teach the rat to do the hula or something. But I cannot observe the animal without having my hand on it to know when it's doing what I want it to and not doing what I don't want it to, and then shocking it. So it's not physically possible for me. So he uh, he didn't like that. And he said, well, you can't graduate then. So I changed my major to social science because I had enough psychology, anthropology, and sociology classes to graduate. And I went to San Jose and my husband got a job there. And I walked into the the social services office the welfare department and said you know do you have any entry-level positions and they said no governor reagan has just declared a um a no um a hiring freeze so we don't have any positions and so i guess i was being a little bit of a smart aleck because as i turned to walk away with my little guide dog and i um she, I said, I guess you've got your token Indian. And before I could take two steps, she said, no, wait a minute. They were, they were trying a new thing in the county where they were putting Hispanic workers in charge of Hispanic names and um, Asian workers in in charge of Chinese or Japanese. So they wanted social workers that could speak other languages And they had a lot of, there was a government policy at that time for dispersal, where they would give people money to leave the res and go to a city. And we had Navajo, we had Eskimo, we had Sioux, we had Lumbee, we had all kinds of people being dumped in the middle of San Jose to find jobs. But they were like Sandra, and like I was as a child um our 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 people weren't with us, and so we would go home as often as we could and as a little girl, animals were my best friends. I tamed a squirrel to come and eat out of my hand. I got a yearling fawn to come and take. Food from my hand. He was smart though. He, if a grown up looked out the window, he'd run away because the grown ups were the ones with the guns. Um, so, you know, I rode my pony on my grandfather's ranch in Texas. Um, all of that, but in the cities, these people were lost. So they hired me to work with a caseload of a hundred families there were four of us in the unit but two of them only had aa degrees so i was a full fledged social worker at entry level and i had the supervisor above me who was a couple of grades up that was and it was a very hostile work environment because they really didn't want a blind person there um everything was done on hand, on forms, in red ink. So I made myself templates to know where to put the date and the time, you know, and what happened in the right spaces and the name of the the client and all of that. And then somebody would enter it into the computer. And even if I'd had my own computer, you know, this was in 1972. there would not have been (laughs) an accessible computer. So it it was a very tough environment because I really cared about the people and they knew it. So if they showed up because they'd run out of their food stamps, I'd roll on all over the building, getting the signatures they needed, getting them vouchers to go to a food bank, getting them help, and they knew it. And I always treated them with respect because that's how I was raised. We honor our our people and we know that people have hard times. And when they come, they don't need to be treated with hostility or disrespect. Um, <laughs> the only time I really had something funny happen was a man came in because he'd been thrown off the rolls and he was quite angry. And he was yelling, and I I was the only one in the office at that moment. So I just said, Please, sir, sit down across from my desk there. You're making my guide dog nervous, and I wouldn't want either one of you to get hurt. And he sat down. And I said, Now explain to me what the problem is, and I will do my damnedest to make sure that I find an answer. And so that's how I treated the people I worked with, but um they eventually ran out of codes because I was working on people's pregnancy leave codes and on sabbatical co- codes for different things. And it meant my check went all, all over the office and they eventually ran out of codes and let me go. So I joined the Peace Corps and spent two and a half years in Samoa, um, because I wanted to serve my country. After all, they'd helped me get an education. And uh, then I went to, um, um, when I returned, I became a La Leche League leader teaching breastfeeding to new, to new mothers. My first child was born in Samoa. I adopted one of my blind students. So I came home with two children. And um, for the next Uh, seven years. I was a stay-at-home mom. I canned, I gardened, I made their clothes um, to try to keep us able to live on my husband's salary as a teacher. Um, But finally, we decided that I needed to go back to work once our youngest was in kindergarten. And um, so we, uh, we sold some family jewelry, and I um, had the money to get a bank loan to open a take and bake pizza franchise. And I convinced the franchise to sell it to me by inviting the sales rep to my home, um, for dinner. And I prepared dinner while he was sitting there and I talked about home management and how, you know, I had all the skills to be a restaurateur because i knew <laughs> how how to uh rotate what i had to use and all of that sort of thing so they sold it to me and i opened uh, the first store in Grants Pass Oregon in uh 19 1984 and i opened a second one 2 years later we sold up in 1997 when our youngest graduated from high school and both wanted to go to Colorado where a lot of my family um, had settled um, and uh, my mother was not well. And as the eldest, I felt it was my responsibility to go make sure she got what she needed. So we sold our businesses and moved to Colorado. I worked as a, a teacher of independent living skills for an adult education program. Then I opened a fair trade gift shop because while working in the Peace Corps, I, I was really fascinated by all the wonderful things people made out of practically nothing. And so I sold items from about 30 countries. Then my daughter, who then was grown up and had married and had three kids, um, came home. Um, and we helped her get her certification as a vet tech. She got an offer at the University of Missouri. Um, She said, Mama, I really want the job. It has benefits. I can't make it on a vet tech part-time basis working for three and four different vets. Um, So can, can you and Daddy come and be my support team? Because kids were... Three, five, and seven, and she couldn't leave them alone at night if they had an emergency. She was trained as an anesthesiology tech for equines horses, and uh just like her mama, she loves horses and um so she had to be available on call weekends and nights and uh so we moved to Missouri. I got a job as an independent living specialist at a at a uh an independent living center in Columbia. And I worked there for 10 years, but then my husband became ill and is now in a wheelchair. So I quit my job to take care of my husband. So part of what I have from my Native American heritage is this, we take care of our people. We take care of each other. When family needs you, you're there. Um. When uh, my great-grandmother... Gave me a great gift when she gave me my Ojibwe name. Um, she called me Shanegamukwe, which means um a day when it is beautiful and sunny and it's safe to go out fishing on the Great Lakes in a birch bark canoe. <laughs> it's a kind of weather term. So quiet water is how I translate it. I'm a writer, a poet. And... uh so, I use that as my middle name when I sign things um, that I write. So, and uh, I've been involved in ACB since 1980 um, when I met Kim Charlson, who was then the youngest ACB state affiliate president. I've been an affiliate president, I've been vice president. It's my favorite. I've, I That's my favorite position. I'd rather be president of vice than actually have to hold the gavel. I'd rather do the work in the background because I'm still shy, (laughs) even though in my ACV family, I do the things they ask because they're family. So that's me. And I'll take, I think Sandra and I would be happy to take questions. Thank you so much, uh,
7: Deanna. That was very. That was wonderful, both of you, Sandra and Deanna. I finally got my computer problems fixed.
6: Um, uh, so, Sandra and I have to Deanna. Tell Deanna. I have a squirrel too. I feed out of my hand. <laughs>
9: I do. It's, it's, I have a
6: horse at home too. Yeah, well, oh, we have yeah.
8: many things in common. I I knew that yes. from your story because we were taught to respect our elders and to always be courteous yes. and gracious, and that yes. was our
6: protection. I took care of my mom when I was eleven, so she passed, and she she passed in my home. She never yeah. went to nursing home. Nope. No, we don't do that. No. no. <laughs> and
8: so yeah, when I was um, fifteen, my mother. um fell and mm. had a pinched nerve in her back mm. and she was in traction for a month and I ran the house mm-hmm. while still yeah. going to high school <laughs> you know you yeah, just do I
6: it yeah, yeah. You just I had do to do a- it from age 11 until she passed because I had to do all the banking, the cooking, the cleaning go to school, I had to turn her every two hours when I was home yeah. it you was know, you- the whole time yeah, no right. my mom I at least got up after yeah. a month but you know <laughs> no she didn't Mm-mm.
8: So, you know, it's yeah. it's part of who we're taught to be. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so when my great-grandmother gave me that name, she was saying, you are perfect as you are.
6: Right, right.
8: And that's, well, you know, Sandra but, means helper of mankind. Yeah, so, you know, that's mm-hmm. what our people tell us when they give us a name that's not our mm-hmm. birth name. They mm-hmm. tell us who we are and they mm-hmm. try to give us something to hold on to okay. when other mm-hmm. people don't treat us right.
5: Right. Yep.
8: So when people act as if we haven't got a lick of sense and mm. can't do anything because oh, we're no. blind,
6: Mm-mm. we
8: we don't accept that because we no, know who we, know we are.
6: That's right. You know better.
8: Yeah, we Mm-mm. know who we are. That's right. Um, so
7: thank you 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 both do have a lot in common it's just <laughs> incredible and all despite all your struggles you mm-hmm. overcame adversity and that's what i wanted to
8: let the <laughs> group... well, <laughs> with, with with quiet water i could not not fight back because my great grandmother was saying water is strong <laughs> water goes over things. It goes (laughs) under things. It goes (laughs) through things. It goes
6: around things. My mama used to tell me that when I would jump off into the lake. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. You have a hand raised if you would like to take
9: it. Sure, yes. All right. Hello, Roger. What's up? Yeah, you you guys talk two or three or four at a time. It's hard for me (laughs) to (laughs) understand. Anyway, I I just wanted to Say a very, um, a very uh, delighted and excited hello to Deanna. I've mm-hmm. I've known her since she was in Oregon, and no. I knew that she was a lovely lady with a very sweet voice. And now I know all the rest about mm-hmm. why I'm so impressed with her. Uh, <laughs> no. It's lot of years. But
8: I remember a once at an ACV convention, national convention, they mm-hmm. had these these carpet runners taped down to the floor across this big open area. Mm-hmm. And the last day, they they pulled them up, and we came out of a meeting, oh, no. and we got in that God. big open space, and Roger
9: starts
8: yeah. to panic. And I said, just follow no. us, because That's I keep um, some bear bells on my dog and so he could follow uh, the sound of my dog as we went across bells. that open area uh-huh. to, the, to get back to the lobby because I said, Aww. there's no moss on the trees, there's no sun on my face, but I've got a guide dog. Follow me.
9: They <laughs> took away all the furniture, so I couldn't figure find my way around. <laughs> and all I took the care of, of such a good girl. And I, I have thought about her and wondered how she was doing, she was in Missouri, and I just, I'm just just so proud, so proud to, to hear her again. And, uh, well, people
8: will sometimes hello. hear my and bear bells. And I still bells. love you, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> people still... You told me um, that your brother,
9: you shouldn't be quiet, Larry, you should be babbling, Brooke.
8: Yes, he um, did. <laughs> he, that's what my brother says. <laughs> but um, when I go with bear bells on my dog's, Little kids, you know, if I go to talk at a school and stuff, they'll hear us walking mm-hmm. up and go, Santa Claus, and I'll go, No, no, oh, dancer.
0: <laughs> People think I'm the Salvation Army with a bell on my
6: Hey, dog. I love Salvation <laughs> Army. I've been hey, in Salvation have, Army since I was five.
5: You have <laughs> one more hand, Meryl. It's uh, Vanessa. Um, hey everybody. Uh, Hi. uh first uh Sandra and Deanna, wonderful mm-hmm. presentations. I've known Deanna personally since Aww. the uh, Pensil- uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, ACB National Convention in 2003, um, and mm-hmm. her her life story is so fascinating. There's things that she <laughs> has shared um, in the past that are uh-huh. that are darker in nature, which isn't necessarily appropriate no. for this particular. Yeah, but, I have but, some of the
6: <laughs> We don't but, have all night. But, but, they, no. but,
5: but they were, but they were very distressing events. Right, very, very distressing, and uh-huh. she overcame. Of course, continues well, to overcame because, as, as she we're takes care through. of oh, the warriors. Huh? You well, know, that's
8: she, one of the reasons, Vanessa. You know perfectly well that part of the reasons I survived is because I had ten amazing guide dogs walking beside me. <laughs> so if true. I have my
5: sister or brother Wolf walking with me, who's okay. gonna who's gonna get in my way?
6: <laughs> no, my but
5: but but her, you know, especially with some of the things that are happening with her family now, which you know, is between the her, me, and the proverbial lamppost, uh-huh. She's. She's one very strong lady. Um, the the culture that she grew up in um, mm-hmm. and that you, Sandra, grew up in is what made you the strong woman you were. And in spite of the prejudice that you experienced um, at times or, or the prejudice, mm-hmm. there, there was one story De- mm-hmm. that, that Deanna recently shared with me that clearly mm-hmm. had to do with the fact that this family member was Native American. And it just... Uh, mm-hmm. I, was so, I was as mad as she was about it. Um, oh, so honey. It,
6: it, it, was just, it was just
5: incredible. But you don't incredible. know what family so, can do sometimes. You just yeah. don't know. Yeah, but it's what the outside world did. It's what the outside world yeah. did. Yeah, yes. And, and it's, yes. It's, it's, it's painful, and it will remain It's yeah, very, Yeah, Yeah, you guys have, have moved beyond that. So as the Midwesterners yeah, you know would what? say... Cool beans.
6: <laughs> you got to come from strong. I came from a strong, my grandmother was strong, my mama was strong. And I'm sure hers was the same way. Yeah. You had good, great examples to follow to make us this way, you know? Yeah,
8: yeah. my grandma used to say when we fussed about anything, well, Mm-mm. wish in one hand and spit in the other and see which one gets the pulled the fastest. First, mm <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, yep, mine too. <clears throat> yep. So, you know, mm-hmm. from my great-grandmother on down, I've had nothing but strong women to look
6: up to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. My mamaw raised six children by herself. So he went one day and never came back. So, um, you know, she did it and survived. Of course, my mother and her oldest brother, they took them to her the oldest. Like you said, she was the oldest girl. Mm-hmm. She stopped school and went to work. Made her a fake ID and went to work in a factory. Mm-hmm. You know, that's she true. had to stop school in eighth grade. Yeah. My mama, to to help my, my mama, my mama, yeah.
8: quit at 14 in order to help mm-hmm. her mother. So,
6: yeah, But yep. as I
8: said, but if we, we did get yes, our, our did. diplomas at her the family. same time because right. I helped her that. with her GED studies.
5: Right. Meryl, is. it is almost 6.10 in case you wanted
7: to. Right. I wanted to say before um, before we go on to the introduction of what people are eating for the banquet, um, I just want to thank, so, because I may not get another opportunity, my awesome convention committee, for all their hard work. We have three members that are new. We have Sandra Sermons. We have Vanessa Lowry and we have Terry Nettles, and then the old members mm-hmm. are Jane, Jane Corona and Patchy and myself. And this convention, all the hard work that you know, it pays off Uh-oh. because everybody yes. shows up.